week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The Lord's warning in Matthew chapter 10. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword is often abused as a justification for militarism. In truth, as with so much biblical imagery, this verse exemplifies the Bible's Ezekielian appropriation of the kingly symbols of power. The sword, the destruction of cities, exile, the decimation of populations by half, violent retribution against wicked leaders, and now in Matthew 25, the casting out of the imprudent all point back to the division heralded by Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. Wherever the Torah is preached, the Lord brings division. One will be taken, he proclaims, and one will be left. Therefore, Paul warns Timothy, study to present yourself approved to God as a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 381 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have arrived at Matthew chapter 25 and the beautiful parable of the ten virgins, a mashal that people are used to hearing in abstraction. Anyone who attends the services of Holy Week, anyone who has heard the gospel read aloud in church, can tell you the parable of the ten virgins. But very few people can tell you the story of the ten virgins in context of the story of Matthew. Very few can explain how the story of the ten virgins fits with the destruction of the temple and the coming judgment. I don't mean how it fits thematically in terms of the concept of judgment contained in the parable, but how it fits within the storyline of Matthew. Even the division of the ten virgins relates to the parables that came before and the teaching that Jesus gave earlier in the passage. We have been talking about destruction and preparedness, and there has been a heavy critique of the temple and of the church leadership. Last week, we heard Jesus slam the leaders of the church, the wicked slaves who don't feed the people with the bread of the gospel. 
the critique last week reminds me of the work you've done on Hosea in your forthcoming book, Richard, in which instead of feeding the people the Torah, the clergy live off the sins of the people. That's the critique we just heard in Matthew. And now we're shifting to hear a critique of the churches. When we hear this parable, we don't think that way because we're not hearing Matthew. We're hearing the parable in abstraction. That abstraction, Father, I think is a big problem because of the way that we read with such short attention spans. If you're reading this parable of the ten virgins and you don't realize that Jesus has been going on for 50 verses before this about readiness, about destruction, about being ready to flee because of the destruction that's coming at any moment that you don't know when it's coming. If you're not reading with that, then you think, oh, it's a nice story. But it's not a nice story. This is about being ready right after weeping and gnashing of teeth. The servants who have to be ready to defend the house from thieves, from people needing to flee to the hills because of the destruction that's coming, not even taking time to grab a coat, lamenting those who can't run as quickly because they're pregnant or they've got a child on their hip. This is the context of this chapter, so I thank God that we're able to go through this. I'm grateful that during our liturgical worship, we're able to spend so much time on this parable, because really when we talk about the bridegroom during Holy Week, we're talking about the crucified one. We're talking about the spouse of the church that's going to be on the cross and judged and humiliated by human beings. This is the one that we're waiting for, and if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss it because he's just going to look like a misfit. The awareness in the liturgical worship is that this one who's being crucified should not be overlooked like you've overlooked every other person who has been humiliated or punished in front of your eyes that you couldn't stand to look at and so therefore needed to turn away. But here in this context in Matthew, it's about the coming judgment. It's about the coming division between those who are paying attention and those who are not paying attention, those who have earthly cares and earthly desires, and those who set aside those earthly cares and earthly desires in order to flee the judgment, in order to throw themselves on the mercy of their father. Regarding Hosea, the point of the teaching is so that the human beings know what side they're on. You know, we say in the liturgy that the bishop's job is to rightly divide the word of truth. The word in Hebrew is hivdil. It is literally to divide. It's the same verb as what happened to the Red Sea right before the Israelites walked through it. It's dividing the true from the false, the wise from the foolish. This is what Torah does. Here are the criteria. If your job as the priest is to make sure that everyone's staying at your church, you can't afford to divide. But if you're going to teach Scripture, you will divide. And you have to risk that division. Now, you hope that people are going to stay on the correct side of truth, the correct side of Torah, 
But you have to risk the community because people have a conscience that you have to respect. They're either going to follow Torah and buy into Torah, or they're going to reject Torah and come for coffee. If they want to come for coffee after the reading, after the service, God bless them. But they can't come to coffee ignorant, thinking they are on the correct side of Torah. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Right off the bat, two key elements that we must highlight. Number one, women represent communities. The number ten often represents an accounting, a census. Remember that the Romans counted in tens. Father Paul makes this point in his work on the book of Revelation. When you count in twelves, it refers to the accounting of Israel because of the twelve tribes. When you count in tens, it refers to the nations. Typical symbolism. So now we're talking about the kingdom. We're talking about the Ezekielian God who is over all the nations. So this is all the churches that were established. So we are talking now about the completeness of God's hegemony over all the earth, the gathering of all of the communities established under the one God of Scripture. And Christ, of course, as you indicated just a moment ago, Richard, is the bridegroom. And so all of these communities are going to be judged. We've been hearing about the destruction of the temple, which is the judgment against Jerusalem, which is also a judgment against Rome, these big symbols of institutional power. We've heard about the judgment against the leaders of the church, which flows logically from the judgment against the temple. And now we're going to hear about the judgment against the churches themselves, which includes all the people in the church. This is leading up to the judgment of all the nations in Matthew 25. This is what happens in the book of Revelation. The churches are judged. There is a reckoning. And your mention of the Hibdil in Hosea chapter 4 is highly functional here at the beginning of Matthew 25 because when you read Torah, there is always a division. That is what is meant when Scripture says that Jesus came to bring a sword. It has nothing to do with justifying violence. It means that when you read aloud the utterances of God, it creates division because a stand is taken. There's a line that's drawn. You either obey what God is saying or you don't. There's no middle ground. There's no word, as we learned in day one of Old Testament 101, there is no word for twilight in Hebrew. It's either day or night. So the moment you utter the words of Scripture, you're creating division. 
you are rightly dividing the word of truth. So there's a division. Two people will be standing at the well. One will be taken and one won't. Or at the field, or at the grinding stone, or whatever. And now you have ten virgins. You have ten communities, ten churches, which represent all the communities of the earth. And there's going to be a reckoning. Because they have been given the light of God's instruction, the light of his Torah, and they have to go out now to meet the bridegroom. This idea of the sword being the tool of division, we used to laugh in Ezekiel because there's a scene where he shaves off his beard and he's supposed to use his sword to divide it up into three pieces. And we would joke about Ezekiel flailing around with a sword, chopping up the stubble from his beard and how funny that must have looked. But the sword is what divides the beard into three pieces for Ezekiel. He divides the beard into three pieces. The people who are going to be destroyed outright, a third of the people who are going to be taken into exile, and a third of the people who are left behind. The sword is the way that one divides in order to figure out what their doom is, what their fate is. Now, with these ten virgins. One thing that makes me think that the ten is significant is that when it comes to the sheep and the goats that we'll read later on in the chapter, it doesn't say how many sheep and goats. It just says there are a bunch of sheep and a bunch of goats. They could have just said there were a bunch of virgins. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto a crowd of virgins, a bunch of virgins, a few virgins, two virgins. Why is it ten? So I think that this is an important number. You know, we we can go back and forth on what exactly it means, but the fact that this is a wholeness as the basis of counting for the Romans is a good way to start looking at this, saying that, okay, we have this complete unit of churches, of bodies of believers, let's say. So what the fate of each one of these bodies of believers, each church is, each community is, is what's going to happen. So moving from chapter 24, where there is a focus on the individual choice of people about whether to believe, not believe, to flee, not flee, to stay awake, not stay awake, and now moving to the community-centered notion of these virgins and the group of them and the group that they represent. You might say we're shifting from the judgment against the leaders and the rulers of the temple, the rulers of the city, whether it be Jerusalem or Rome, the leaders of the church or the leaders of the churches, and now we're dealing with the consequence of the sin of the leaders because now the communities are going to be judged. And this is important because it's very popular in our culture to revel in the critique of the leaders, and rightly so, because to whom much is given, much is expected. The leaders are and should and will be judged more harshly. That is why when we think about violence against black youth, the police are judged more harshly because they bear the greater responsibility. They have more power. They have more responsibility. They must be held to a higher account. It's not a question of fairness. It's a question of the burden of responsibility. 
It's as simple as that, friends. So yes, the clergy are and must and should be judged more harshly than the flock. But the flock will also be judged. Do not kid yourself. Nobody's off the hook. And so now we're talking about the flock, the community, the church, including the leaders, but now everybody being judged. And it's not about a literal 10 churches. It's about all of the communities of the earth being gathered and being separated by the Torah. It's the Hibdil. What's the big deal about Hibdil? <laughs> We're going to find out. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. Sounds amazingly similar to what we heard in chapter 24. Rightly dividing the word of truth. We are separating and parting. We are splitting things up. I want to go back once again to this division. Two people will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. There will be ten virgins carrying their lamps. Five of them will be foolish and five of them will be wise. It's the same teaching. It's playing out in a different example, but it's reiterating the same point. It's, in a way, imposing a statistic on the addressee of the story to make you realize that at every second you're faced with a choice. Every moment is a keros, and the coin could flip either way. You could be against the teaching of God and in active rebellion, or under the authority of the teaching of God in submission to its wisdom. But when the hour comes, you don't want to be on the side of the foolish and cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, as we just heard in verse 51 at the end of chapter 24. We keep hearing Matthew telling us over and over again, you have a 50-50 chance, friends. Don't blow it. Those are not good odds. You have a 95% chance with Pfizer and Moderna, and you're still jumpy. And Matthew's telling you, you have a 50-50% chance, and you're chilling and relaxing like the wicked slave. The nonchalant nature of people when it comes to Scripture and understanding Scripture is funny to me. You and I were talking before, if you have a theology and it's based on a couple verses from Romans and a couple verses from Hebrews, it means nothing unless it agrees with Ezekiel. And if you don't know what Ezekiel says, then you don't know what you're putting your trust in. All you know is you've got two bricks and you called it a building. Well, you know, if they're next to each other or if they're on top of each other, neither way is it going to hold very much. It has to actually be built on something and actually be a complete structure. You can't build a complete structure on two bricks. But if you say, well, two bricks is enough for me, okay, fine, but 
like you said, Father, there's a 50-50 chance, and it's all about alertness and paying attention. It's not just thematically that this connects with the wise servant. I mean, phronimos is the word that's used for both the virgins on the correct side of things and the servant on the correct side of things. Phronimos, you have to be prudent. You have to be wise. And if you're going to be on the right side of things, you have to know what Scripture said. You know, we were talking earlier, Father. There was a time in the United States where a family might own one single book, a Bible. And it was actually a job you could have being a door-to-door Bible salesman. That meant that if an adult person read something that day, it was going to be the Bible, because it's the only book they owned. Maybe they got a newspaper from time to time, but maybe not, but they owned a Bible. They might have been mostly illiterate, But if they read anything, it was going to be the Bible. 99% of our audience, if they've read anything today, it was Facebook. Bible? Eh, Maybe, maybe not. But their news source? Definitely. So why is it that someone who depended on the weather and peace in order for their farm to run were reading the Bible every day? But you, who don't depend on any of those things, are reading about the news about India before you're reading Scripture. We all need to think about what phronimos means on a daily basis in our lives because this story about wise and foolish virgins, wise and foolish servants, wise and foolish disciples has a direct impact on how we start off our own day. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. And of course, before the podcast, Richard, you and I being the nerds that we are, we're obsessing about this beautiful word in Greek, eleon. And whenever I read this verse, I just want to stop and start singing Byzantine music because the wordplay in the hymnography between oil and mercy is off the charts because the wordplay in the New Testament in the Greek between oil and mercy is off the charts because the interplay between Bible study and mercy is off the charts. If you prepare through the study and the submission to God's instruction, you will find the overflowing of his oil in your lamp on that day. You know, it's like the prayer when the priest puts the um, stole on, the epitrachelion, before the liturgy when you vest. There's a prayer about the oil that runs down the beard of Aaron. It's the mercy that pours out of the scroll of God's instruction. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about oil. We're talking about the mercy of God's wisdom for us so that we can find life despite the boot of tyranny, despite the oppression of the enemy, 
despite all of the things that work against life, we can find life with each other in this life because of God's mercy. And that mercy can save us from the judgment to come if we prepare as instructed in Matthew 24. That's what we're talking about in the parable of the ten virgins. Yeah, you can go so far with this homonym because eleon and eleon in Greek is just a spelling difference between oil and mercy. You know, I remember one time someone coming from the healing service of unction, and they said, I don't know what happened with the unction service. You know, it's Thursday, and I still have this darn cold. <laughs> and and they're like, well, let me explain to you a little bit more about how, about how this oil works. So when we talk about the church being a hospital, oil was one of the main medicines that the ancients used. That's why it was so valuable. And when you take oil as medicine— then you think of mercy as medicine. What does mercy heal? Mercy heals the sin in one's heart because the sin that it's all about me and I need to take what I can get and I am the one who's right. Those are the maladies that take hold when we aren't applying a regular dose of mercy. Then if we want to take this metaphor even further, okay, what is the lamp that burns with mercy? What kind of light does mercy produce? And we can go back to the Sermon on the Mount because everyone wants to be the light of the world, right? That's what everybody wants. They don't want to be the light of the world. They just want a spotlight on them. But the lamp burns with mercy. If there's no mercy in the vessel, then there's no flame for a light. It's that simple. When the virgins who are phronimos fill their vessel, they make sure it's full of mercy. And as soon as we think, okay, we've got enough mercy, you know, the mercy is going to keep burning off more and more mercy until it gets low again and we have to refill it. But how does that work? It's because we think that we've got enough mercy, we don't need any more. You know, the people who are like, oh, Jesus died once and that's it. I've got all the mercy that's on offer. I've got everything I need. Well, I don't know. Is your light shining with the light of mercy? Is mercy the way that you're living? Is mercy the way that you're conducting yourself? If there's not mercy in the way that you're conducting yourself, then how can we say that there's any mercy in this lamp of yours? And I'm saying mercy because I'm using mercy instead of oil, because in Greek, if I was saying one, you wouldn't know which one I was saying. And St. John Chrysostom, he plays off this. The unction service prayers play off this metaphor and wordplay. This parable, it's impossible not to think that it has something to do with filling one's vessel with mercy. Matthew is a genius because the parable of the ten virgins here is a setup for a technical knockout. He's going back to the beginning and he's telling you, look, I told you in the Lord's Prayer, don't judge anybody and you won't be judged. I told you that the eye is the lamp of the body. 
So make sure that you put the light of God's instruction in your lamp and make sure you don't judge anybody. And that's coming into focus here with the lamps that the churches on the earth are supposed to be carrying. If the churches fill their lamps with the light of the gospel, they will be filled with mercy, not judgment. Judgment towards the church and mercy towards the world. But what do we hear in the churches? We hear judgment towards the world and praise and self-adoration towards the church. How many times do you walk into a church and hear how great that church is, how wonderful the church is, how they're right, how they're better than the other churches, how they have a superior culture, a superior worldview, how successful they were in their building campaign, how much they've achieved, why everyone should follow them and not the other people. All we hear is the superiority complex of the modern world when we walk into a church in this country. We don't hear what Matthew is teaching us, that we are the wicked upon the earth, and we have no right to judge anyone else. That is not the light that illumines the lamp with which we go out into the world. And that is why we're condemned already. The parable of the ten virgins is not good news. It sounds nice, but not when you take it in context of earlier passages in Matthew. At the same time, it's laying it out for you. If you want to get through the judgment in Matthew 25, study Torah and learn from it to show mercy. That's how you're going to get through this. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.